Welcome to the official podcast of Forternia.com. We have the power. I'm your host, AJ, aka Voodoo Magic, aka Zor. And today's episode is titled Demons Be Gone because today we're continuing our retrospective review series of the Netflix 2021 show, Masters of the Universe Revelation, specifically episode four, Land of the Dead, which is all about struggling with demons. Now, not the physical kind, mind you, even though we will have a little bit of that, but rather the mental demons that these characters we love carry on the inside. The ones that many of us individually struggle with day to day and try to overcome on a journey to becoming a better person. And speaking of better persons, we have one with us today. You might know today's co-host as Maria, the moderator of our growing uh, Forternia official Facebook group, or for her fantastic Masters of the Universe fan fiction written under the name Maria dos Lunos. But she is also known as Fernanda. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on with us today. So welcome, Fernanda. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. I'm excited to have you. And I'm excited just to talk to you first to find out how you became a fan and how Masters of the Universe is perceived in Mexico. So... Fernanda, can you tell us your personal beginning with this franchise, you know, your origin story with Masters of the Universe, and uh, how did you become a fan? Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan since the very beginning, uh, as it first uh, aired in Mexico in the 80s, you know, just a few years ago. <laughs> so here, right from the beginning, it was uh, these, these series that they... Um, that they showed in in open TV. I don't know if that's the the right term, but like you didn't have to get cable to watch it. So yeah. all my generation watched it, and we were um, amazed by the power, right? And I didn't have um, a figure from Motu from He-Man. It was my neighbor. My neighbor, my neighbor was a big fan. He had this massive collection. He had um, Castle Grayskull. He also had snake mountain and every new figure that came out he he would purchase well his, his parents and i remember him buying tila and evelyn so that i could play along right so it it, it has a, a very nice memory for me not that i couldn't play with the other figures but it was really nice that i could play with a female action figure which there weren't that many back then and yeah, that, I think that's why um, I always have very nice and fond memories of my childhood associated with He-Man and later with She-Ra. I actually do have, I still have my action figures of uh, She-Ra and Catra and Glamour. I think those were, uh, and Swiftwind, I think, I, at my parents' house and <laughs> not at my current current house. So, so, so you still have those original... Me. You still have those original toys then. So you've never yes. gotten rid of them. Oh, that's no. great. <laughs> so uh, you said you mentioned you would play with Tila and Evelyn. Were those your favorite characters 
from Masters of the Universe? Um, Tila is my second favorite character, only after Prince Adam. That's actually my uh, favorite character. Yeah, yeah, that's so, that's the one. <laughs> so Prince Adam, not He Man. Is there a, is there any? Can you explain why that Prince Adam is your favorite? I think, well, now that I've come to rationalize it, it's because he was carrying the burden of, of the power. He didn't get any of the glory. He had to pretend to be someone uh, that he was not. Like he had to, to be this persona of a cowardly prince. And, um, and I, I, I would sympathize with him. Like he's, he's doing all this uh, great work for, for Eternia and it's, not getting any recognition. On the contrary, everyone is berating him and thinking badly of him. And and I'm so happy that it was front and center in Revelation. I know I'm maybe in the in the low percentage of people who who was like uh, so happy to to be for him to be front and center in this new show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I. Uh... I, I was one that didn't appreciate Adam as much until Revelation, until I realized oh. what a hero he really was, because so much of us would want to, you know, be a soup, that superhero out in the open, say, look, I'm He-Man, you know, I'm She-Ra, I'm, I'm sure. the one that's helping everyone and saving everyone, but to keep that a secret and not take the credit and the glory and all the adulation is, is so incredible for someone to do that I don't think normal people could or would do that. So I 100% see where you're coming from. And that's a, uh, a great choice. You had mentioned to me also, and this is always so fascinating to me because it's not something I even thought of it, that you had an opportunity to interview Ruben Moya. I think I'm pronouncing him correctly. Um, the voice of He-Man from the classic, you know, 1983 filmation series, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe in Mexico. Now, you know, what I know, what um, as voice actor John Irwin, who voiced He-Man in the English version of the series, but I didn't know that it was Ruben who played the character of He-Man in the Mexican dubbing. So, so that must have been quite a thrill, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, a friend, uh, a friend of mine from Venezuela. She has this, uh, this uh, YouTube channel. She's she talks about comics, and and pop culture. And she landed that uh, interview, and she asked me to join. And of course, being the massive fan that I am, I was so thrilled. And he was very nice uh, to to be with us. And you know, I since I am in Mexico, and he's too. I I made um, the phone call, the first phone call. And the minute I, I picked, uh, well, he picked up the phone, I was transported, teletransported to my childhood. I was listening to He-Man. Uh, it was like, it was, it was the weirdest um, feeling. Like I got the chills. Like I did not expect yeah. that to happen to me. I was brought back to my childhood in an instant in, to, to very fun uh, memories. And, and the interview is in Spanish, of course. And you can see, you could watch me like, I'm in total fan mode in that interview. I really enjoyed it. He's 
he was very nice and to to be with us there. He has this fantastic voice to this day, so manly, so deep. And we all remember that. You you asked me a few moments ago how big um, Motu was in, in Mexico, in Latin America. I can tell you it's very big. It's, it's part of the pop, pop culture to this, to this day. And it, even people who were uh, born afterwards can recognize who this this guy is and and to this day it has a massive following and a lot of collectors and in the groups sometimes uh i can tell someone is posting posting in, in english but i can tell they're from mexico so i start talking to them in in spanish uh, about the things that, that we know and where to find the figures here in mexico and so and so yeah now do i understand right that you started collecting just a little in the new Masterverse figures that came out. That you finally you, yes. you got the bug, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and and I didn't intend to. I I'm not collecting, but I like <laughs> so far like seven figures, six figures, two action figures into. I'm not collecting slippery slope. So. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, be, it, it, it gets be, us all. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I didn't even know if they would be available through regular retail here in Mexico. And I could order them online through specialized um, retailers, but I didn't want to. But one day I stumbled upon them at a regular uh, supermarket and, and I was like, I, I need to have them. <laughs> it was He-Man is the first one, and I fell in love instantly. I was like, "Yeah, I have the power," <laughs> because they're they're really nice figures. They the yeah. their their aesthetic. I really I really appreciate the the way that you can pose with them, that you can move them around. And what I did not expect is that my my little daughter, she's five. Uh, she fell in love with those action figures too, and we play with them. So it, it's very nice. It's very nice. That's great. You know, um, it's it's really interesting that Masters of the Universe Revelation has um, just not impacted you that way, but so many of us, you know, where our fandom has been reignited, you know, and for some of us that haven't collected those figures since they were a kid, or maybe not collected them at all, are suddenly collecting them and as adults, and it's just been a lot of fun. And I think it's all because of, uh, well, this series, this poster behind me, you know, that, that it's just really ignited our, our passions, right? Yes. And to me, I, I know uh, some some fans were not like thrilled about how uh, the first episode, but I think the whole series, this first season showed us how how important Eman really is to Eternia. It, yeah. The the entire planet is crumbling down. Uh, the the kingdom, the marriage of Isarians, everyone is just, uh, it, it's in decay because we need He-Man. I, I think the point they were trying to make is, uh, we, we were taking him for granted. We were like, as kids, we were, at least I was, I knew he would come and save the day, 
like the last minute he would appear and he would do his thing and everything will be okay. And Revelation took took that away. And that was very interesting. And I think it it made it made me appreciate Heman even more as a character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's really uh, uh appealing to adults and speaking actually about appealing to adults before we get into our retrospective i wanted to tell everyone that uh, fernanda is a fantastic writer and this isn't just um, hyperbole and what amazing is is that english isn't your first language but you would never know it because the way you put your words together it's just wonderful. And how you take the readers inside the characters' heads of your fan fiction, characters like Adam and Tila, is just amazing. So for anyone who wants to check it out, we're going to have a link on uh, fourtourney.com, as well as a link in the comments of the podcast uh, YouTube broadcast, so you can check it out. But just a little caveat, it's mature writing. It's probably not for kids, uh, just for adults, but uh, it's really terrific. And I highly recommend it that um, you should check it out. You just did a great job with that. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really uh, I'm really happy and surprised that you, that you think that well about my writing. Uh, and now I am very open about writing this fan fiction. I was not at first, I was very, very shy. And, but over the years I've learned that if you enjoy something and 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 it brings joy to your life, that that's good. And it's it's clearly labeled as uh, mature. It's not overly explicit because that's not what I get out of it. But it it, it talks about a lot of the feelings. There's there's I, I was like, how can I how can I say this? Um, I let my creativity run free, and I was as uh, cheesy and as corny as I as I wanted. I didn't um, I didn't censor myself, and in the end, I think I, I I can I'm very proud of of what happened with those fanfics. So yes, check them out. <laughs> yes, they're really good. Everyone who's listening. So thank you. All right. So now it's time to uh, continue with our retrospective series um, of the episodes of Masters of the Universe Revelation, today being episode four, Land of the Dead. Now, audience, if this is your first time listening, we will be uh, doing this chronologically, uh, similar to a sporting event broadcast from beginning to end. I will deliver the play-by-play, -play, and then myself and Fernanda will stop me at points where we might want to add some color commentary. And let's not forget that we are big fans, but it's hard for us to remember everything. So if we do get something wrong, we apologize in advance. We are both Masters of the Universe fans, just like you, and we got nothing but love for every single one of you. So, Fernanda, are you ready to go? Yes. <laughs> All right. So, the episode begins with the iconic bursting red lava rocks that we all love so much. And then the camera pulls out of the jawbridge of Castle Grayskull, and we get the title that appears, Land of the Dead. 
Then the episode begins in darkness where Tila pulls out her little cool weapon that can almost do everything, her bow staff, and she produces a blue neon uh, glow, almost like a uh, Halloween glow stick. And then with our fellowship of Tila and Andra and Orko and Roboto and Lynn and Beastman in a dark cavern, Orko begins to speak and recount the verses of when he was a child of a old Trollin nursery rhyme, something that the writer of this episode, the great Tim Sheridan, explained was actually the idea of executive producer Ted Biaselli. But it was to set up the character of Scareglow. But Orko began saying, you cannot make your living in the land of the dead, my dear. The only wealth you'll need to bring is the currency of fear. Flee before your mind goes mad. Trust not what Subternia shows. Terror fuels the fires of hell, whose lord is called Scareglow. So, wow, these children of Trala sure were told scary <laughs> nursery rhymes. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think it, it was a great choice for exposure. Like, how do you set up? So, in an instant, like in a few seconds, you get a very good idea of who this guy is and what is going to happen, and that you should not trust what's going on in there. The first time I watched it, I. I missed a lot of details, but on rewatch, I can appreciate this um, this writing. I'm, I think it's masterful. I really admire um, Tim. It's it's fantastic writing. I oh, think it is. It is. He did a great job with this one, and I'm going to um, compliment him all through the episode. I'm sure, just like you. So, yeah. so, so Orko notices this green ball of light that leaves an illuminescent trail, uh, like a comet. Tila watches it and warns her fellow adventurers to keep their eyes open, to find the sword, as she said, and get out. But when Tila turns to face them, she finds that they have all shockingly disappeared. Then suddenly, the crystals glow green one by one, lighting a descending path, as we hear a ghostly voice call out, Tila. I'm going to do these voices. <laughs> I apologize in advance. So much fun. So, but it's very creepy. And uh, so Tila extends her bow staff into a blade and cautiously begins following down the path. And then the crystals glow into a bright light that dissolves into a transition of Evelyn shielding her eyes from the bright light until the blinding light dissipates and she opens her eyes to find her and Orko in what appears to be Trala, which is uh, Orko's homeworld. And Orko wonders if they're dead and Evelyn counters. And I, I just love actress Lena Hetty here. She says, Fantastic. of course, yeah, she says, of course not, Simpleton. This is some kind of uh, Subternian illusion. And she gazes around uh, and watches two birds land in a nest. And then she remarks, a very good illusion. Yeah, I want to ask um, your opinion. I think this is out of the, out of the blue, but what do sure. you think are their fears? 
I have my theory, but what do you think it's, because this is about the fear, the greatest fear that every character has, and it's going to play out around them. And I, it's, it, it, it has to do with the, the scenery that they are both thin. And while you give it a thought, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I might add something that when I watched your interview to Tim, uh, when, when, when I was watching uh, Eveline throughout the series, I thought like, Lena, this character was written for her. And we discovered in your interview that she was, and um, that 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 yeah. this character was written to accommodate how great actress Lena is, and it shows. I love how I, I think the performance as the performance. My favorite one is uh, Lena Headey. Yes, but back to the question. <laughs> back to the question in regards to their fears. I think it's more, at least the way I see it, is more of Orko and Evelyn's insecurities that um, both of them feel a kinship together and a lack of self-worth. They lack confidence that they are worthy, that even though they somewhat still believe that inside, their, their fear is that they just don't deserve good things to happen to them. And... I just don't see it necessarily. I mean, I could see fear driven from that. Actually, I'm curious what, so what are your theories in regards to their fears? I would love to hear. Well, for, I, I was, um, as I was re-watching this chapter, yeah. I saw that Evelyn, the worst fear she has is that magic is fading away and that she's nothing without magic, that her value is what she can do, how she can uh, play with magic. She has found that her strength and losing it, 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 it makes her, her feel lost. And for Orko, I think they are back to his childhood home where he was supposed to be an oracle and he was not. And everyone was mocking him. And he's back to those memories of being bullied, basically. And I think, uh, well, many of us can relate to moments in our childhood that we were not like appreciated for, for who we were. Yeah. That I think that's uh, his worst fear is facing those who, who bullied here, him when he was a child. I think that's my theory. It's a fan theory, okay? It's not, <laughs> nothing more than well, that's, that. And I, yeah, and I do think fear stems from that. And I just, um, but I think we're sort of close to the same point that there is still just this, this lack of uh, worthiness inside both of them. You know, as you said, if Evelyn lost her magic, you know, what is she worth? And Orko, even though he has magic, what is he worth? Because he can't come into his power correctly. And uh, that's why I just saw this wonderful connection between both characters that before Revelation, I never would expect these two to work so well together. And that was the magic of this series. That was the magic of Tim Sheridan's writing and Kevin Smith's um, direction over all of these writers. And it was just a wonderful dynamic that these two shared that is, no pun intended, magical. 
you know it's a big surprise to pair them that they were well so close like in in after their adventure together they have a special bond because they have both had their struggles and magic is what uh yeah makes them who they are in a way yeah yep Okay, so to locate the others, uh, Orko conjures that mystic observation lens to find his friends, which manifests into this large magnifying glass that immediately concentrates the sunlight and burns, uh, burns two nesting birds funnily into uh, complete ashes as Orko gasps and Lynn holds her head and mutters, imbecile, you know, which is just so funny. And, uh, you know, this moment actually uh, quickly took me back to the um, filmation series because He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, wherever any time He-Man was about to, quote unquote, kill something, someone would always remind the audience that, you know, this rock creature is not alive. It's just rocks formed by magic. Or this sand creature is not alive. It's just sand. And it was just calling out that there was no actual killing happening here. And here we are once again, where we're told the birds are just an illusion right before Orko, you know, descent disintegrates them, turns them into dust, letting the audience know that, yeah, Orko didn't really kill innocent birds, you know? So it took me back to the uh, childhood viewings of that show for me. I still felt a bit guilty for laughing at <laughs> <laughs> the birds. And I get that, but just remind yourself they're not real. It's all an illusion. So. They're not. <laughs> 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 so uh lynn decides to walk into the trawling academy of magic for clues and orko says good idea maybe someone at the academy could help them uh seemingly forgetting he's in an illusion but orko says wait up lynn and can i call you lynn and lynn just retorts no <laughs> which is just so hilarious how she responds and uh, once again, it's just perfect uh, actress. Delivery. Yeah, yeah, and perfect delivery, you know. So next we cut to this horrific human skull, right, on a pike in a desolate wasteland littered with armored remains and corpses and bodies that appear from a battle a long time ago. And this is where Andro Roboto and Beastman was brought to. And we hear Beastman screaming in a panic, you know, my lady, where are you, my lady? Because Evelyn is nowhere to be found. And, um, but the next assertive uh, female voice in the vicinity uh, tells Beastman to calm down, which is the voice of Andra. And he does. And I love how Beastman subtly defaults to the next strongest female here. And, true, I, I, true. and I mentioned before in our previous episode that I was um, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a reflection of Beastman's culture, where the uh, females, the queens, the beast women uh, led the tribes. And this was just normal for Beastman. And I, and I really like it. I really like this aspect. You know, it's another layer of beast man that we never had before um, revelation, you know? 
yeah, I loved how developed Pistant into some some character that we can bond with. Yeah, I mean that that was unexpected for me. I I I know a lot of people are the fans of the evil uh, characters and they are their favorites. I'm I don't know why I'm all, always uh, leaning towards the good ones, the heroes. Uh, but in this in this uh, series. Evelyn stole my heart, and so did Beastman. And I really, I really like your 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 theory. That's uh, that's I I really like that. But the way you you see Beastman reflecting his his culture, yes. Yeah, and I, I it's what's nice about this show is it just gives you just enough information that you can start developing your theories, right? And and it's so fun for a fan to say, well, maybe this is why, or maybe this is why. And uh, it's so much fun. And this episode creates a lot of room for us to speculate and come up with these theories. And it's just it's so much fun. Yes. So Andra says they should figure out where they are first, then they could look for the others. So Roboto ex uh, accesses his advanced telemetry vision to scan and determine their exact location but after scanning the terrain, Roboto says they are nowhere. And at that moment, Andra notices they are being watched from a mountaintop. So she jokes or jests to Roboto that she supposes they are alone too. And Roboto is about to confirm that statement that there are no life forms, no creatures in the vicinity until he spots three shadow beasts glaring at them from afar as well. And then Beastman says, I smell a fight. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and a quick for Filmation fans, um, those creatures up top there are called Shadow Beasts. Those little monsters were, um, or large monsters, were introduced in the, the Filmation series, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And I was super excited to see them here, but they do feel a little bit different as the episode progresses meaning they seem a little less uh flesh and blood and more comprised of shadows that come in different shapes and sizes like that large one that eventually attacks evelyn and orko i think but, it's it's that they take the shape of the fear yeah. that's my theory that's that well that's how i i think it was intended that way that when one there's some Andra uh, perceives them as zombies or something like the, the like, and Beastman perceives them as flying monsters. Isn't isn't? Am I right? Am I right? Yes. At first they see the shadow beasts, and then you're right. As we cut back to them, there's zombies and there's fire bats, and it looks like you're right that it's their fears being mani manifested in front of them, and. Um, so I'm not sure why it starts out in Shadow Beasts, but we get Shadow Beasts, I think, at the end of the series as well. So I do think these Shadow Beasts are maybe their original form, and then they can manifest into something else. But it would make sense that a creature called Shadow Beasts uh, from the Filmation series uh, would worship and um, answer to Scareglow, a ruler of shadows, right? He, I, if, if, if someone's a ruler of shadows, you'd probably be ruling and controlling something called Shadow Beast. So it, it works for me personally. Yeah, it makes sense. 
Yeah. So we cut back to Tila as she steps into a circle of glowing crystals. And finally, we hear that ghostly voice again say, um, ah, at last, you know, so much anger masking so much fear. Then a skull appears briefly in the green mist, and Tila asks if it's Skeletor. But the voice responds, not quite, but I remember that name. And then the figure reveals that he's a shadow of a ruler, now ruler of shadows. And the figure steps out to reveal. Yeah, this is, I think they left that uh, uh, loose end. In case we can have a continuation, which we will have uh, a second season, and so that they can build upon that, like reveal who this being is, why he's not, he doesn't say, I'm not Skeletor, he's not quite, which is very enigmatic to me. I want to know yeah. more about that. I'm intrigued. And he's a shadow of a ruler. I don't know, maybe it has to do with the, the halves. Uh, corpse half skeleton that we see at the entrance uh, in the previous chapter at the end of chapter three that Evelyn looks at it with uh, this longing and we thought that it might have been his father because of the other iterations of uh, other comics and this sort of thing but after the next season, we I'm not sure. I'm not sure what this skeleton at the entrance of um, uh, Subternia is. I'm confused. I have to confess about that. Well, it's um, the, the I, I love your idea that it's somehow connected. And all we know in the Revelation um, art book was that it was a used to be a wizard protecting a mage, protecting the entrance to Scareglow. Now his robes actually look um, like a a character, and you can see the um, an action figure called the Faceless One. But it looks similar, but it's not exactly that character. But some fans said, oh, this might be the faceless one. But we don't know for sure. No, and I like, know. yeah, and I like what you're saying. And I agree with you that um, I'm glad I don't know for sure. Uh, with just a simple, a few simple lines about remembering Skeletor's name and being a shadow of a ruler. Uh, Tim Sheridan here is teasing the audience that there is a deeper backstory here to this terrifying scare glow. And it's intriguing us um, because we're just giving a taste. And we were wondering, like you said, is, is scare glow somehow, you know, a ghost of Skeletor related to Skeletor or uh, was scare glow once a ruler or a king many eons ago? And uh, we don't know. It's just left us a tease, a mystery. But mysteries are so fun. So it's um, and it's wonderful that it's left that way. Yes. So Scareglow asked Tila, uh, why has she come to his domain? And Tila reveals that she's looking for a sword. Scareglow then acknowledges her as a collector, much like himself, a keeper of relics, once treasured, now without a purpose. 
But Scareglow then makes the half of the power sword Tila seeks appear like a apparition above her hand, uh, above his hand. And so clearly Scareglow already knows more about Tila and her quest than he first let on. And Tila reaches to grasp this floating sword, but Scareglow clenches his hand, making it disappear and instead offers Tila a bargain. Scareglow says or tells Tila that he will give her what she seeks in exchange for her fear. He remarks that he's been deprived, that he needs nourishment, and what will nourish this scary, ghastly figure is Tila's delicious fear. And she and, says that she has no fear. She's she's so confident that she has no fear, but she does. Oh, yes, she does. <laughs> we all do. Yeah, she's buried it so deeply that she's even convinced herself that she has no fear. But uh, even us as an audience, we know better, you know. But um, we try to fool ourselves too sometimes. And uh, we don't realize what's what's deep inside us and and i love that scare glow feeds on fear you know it gives him strength it makes him stronger i was so excited for this character to appear on this show because this character i think was debuting like mini comics back in 1983 wow. and, it, and it, yeah and it was almost like 40 years almost that we never got him on television. And then finally we did, Fernanda, and it was fantastic for fans. And I'm just loving it here. And I'm loving also that every time uh, Scarecrow gets close to Tila, he starts to glow. And at first I was uh, um, having the impression that his body was reacting to Tila's fear. Uh, being empowered by it. But, but I learned later, at least in the um, art book, that the creators detailed that Scareglow's body would glow due to a heightened level of either excitement or stress. Mm -hmm. But it was so cool to see that oh. happen. I didn't know this. I didn't know this. Uh, I'm learning as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it was, it was great. And Powerhouse Animation Studios did a wonderful job with that glowing effect. And it was really eerie. Yeah, I, I and, think uh, one, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm, there is a lot of uh, fan service, if I might use that term, yes. in Revelation. And I, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan. Maybe not the biggest, not the most no knowledgeable. But I'm a true fan. I mean, I've been here from the beginning. And all those little bits and glimpses and callbacks uh, to, to previous material of Motu, uh, it really makes it very rich. I mean, there were many jokes that only 80s kids could get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and also, but they also managed to make something that is attractive to to younger audiences. I'm really excited when I see newer fans getting into, into Motu because of Revelation. I see in the comment section or people who are making fan arts or fanfics or, or customization of 
uh, action figures that, that that say that I discovered this franchise because of Revelation, and now I'm in love and I'm contributing with with my little part to to it. And I'm really excited about that. I'm I'm a welcome I'm welcoming the new fans. I'm I'm because that's how you keep a franchise relevant. So we that means we'll we will get more of oh, Motu in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just read a comment this morning where uh, someone said, I just finished Masters of the Universe Revelation. It was a tweet. And they said, I think they tagged Kevin Smith and they said, and I guess I'm a Masters of the Universe fan now. And, you know, I can't wait for more. I can't remember exactly what the details were, but I've read things like that. And I just read another one, like I said, just this morning. And it is wonderful that people are watching Revelation. You know, it's not just rekindling um, old fans, their their passion and and stoking those fires. But it's, yeah, it's bringing new fans into the fold and um, that haven't been fans before. And that's, yeah, that's really fun. It's really fun to see this grow. You know, since since that show came out, I've seen it grow. You've seen it grow and it's on social media and all these new people coming in and collectors for the first time. And it's really exciting that so many people are love what we love. Right. Yes. It's, it's, mm. a, it's a great feeling to to know that something that stuck with us. I mean, I think it never left. I wrote my fan fiction back in 2016 out of there. There was no like a newer edition the last one had been like in 2002 uh but it stuck with me and one winter i was like these scenes keep coming to my mind i have to write them down and and so when i learned that there was going to be another uh another series uh of motu i was like over the moon instantly <laughs> and i think many fans were like this too yeah yeah <sighs> I was. I couldn't believe it. You know, I felt, especially when I found out it was a continuation to the original filmation series, because uh, that's my favorite version until now. You know, and uh, so I was so excited to for it to pick up all of those threads, including um, the main one, which was Tila's quest, which was the episode that Tila found out. Well, she didn't find out. We found out as an audience that Tila was the daughter of the sorceress which is, um, you know, a bit important in this episode here. Yes, I, I think um, if, if I might add this, um, Tila has been central to the story. The sorceress is central to the story. I, I see that the champion and the sorceress are two sides of the power. And Tila was bound to be to become the new sorceress. And so her destiny and, and Adam's, I mean, he-man, um, they, they're they're bound together and they are very important. And I'm really happy that I get to see that, uh, that change. Yeah. So Tila says she fears nothing, but Scareglow counters. She is dripping with it. And Ultimately, Tila decides to make the deal with the devil and agrees that in exchange for the sword of power and the freedom of her companions, that Tila will show Scareglow her fear. And Scareglow says done and snaps his finger and the um, 
and the glowing green crystals that surround Tila uh, emit a blinding uh, light. And she shields her eyes, and once the lights fades, she sees that she's floating over a giant dark pit, what Scareglow calls the Well of Darkness. And Scareglow reveals some fine print, uh, basically telling Tila that the deal is to survive your demons and gain the prize you seek. But if she succumbs to her demons, if she falls to her fears, then she will spend a eternity with Scareglow forever as part of Scareglow's collection. And Scareglow says the revelation beckons, or maybe he says begins, but then Tila is hurled down the pit. So then next, the transition is back to Evelyn and Orko at the Academy of Magic in Trala, uh, where, the, where the well is. And Orko suddenly points out that the well is called the Spell Spring, a great font, a great fountain of mystical energy that sits basically under a planetarium of these planets. And... Orko explains that the Spellspring is a never-ending source of all Trollin magic, that it's their, it's their life force. But now it sits completely dry, and, and it's a sign that all the other Trollins are gone, that they've seemingly died. And Orko asks how, and Evelyn indicates that magic is really dying, not just in Eternia. And Orko starts to get scared that this is not just an illusion, but a, a reflection of what it looks like today in Trala. And perhaps, perhaps he is the last Trollin in the universe. So Orko sits at the end of the spring and begins to make a confession to Evelyn. And he confesses that his name really isn't Orko that his parents originally wanted to set him up for greatness. And when Orko was born, they really gave him a name to match that, that level of greatness that was their expectation, that they expected him to achieve. But when you're little, some words are hard to pronounce. And when he said Orko, he really meant Oracle, all-knowing and all-powerful, or at least that's what he meant to say, Oracle. And, well, first let me stop right there and say uh, actor Griffin Newman is just wonderful here as Orko. And there's no voice modulation, you know, no computer affecting his voice. And um, in my opinion, he has brought more soul and more heart and, and authenticity to this little floating character than ever before. And both Griffin and Lena uh, play so well off each other. And this pairing is a masterstroke in, in casting. Uh, great job, Kevin Smith. And with Bear McCreary's brilliant score in the background, um, they really breathe, both these actors just breathe heart into these wonderful lines of dialogue. And I can't express enough the, the most remarkable, beloved aspect to me of Masters of the Universe Revelation is the authentic 
the authentic emotions that I feel conveyed by these characters that they feel. And I end up feeling it myself. And, and this scene is one of those shining moments to me. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's also uh, uh, Orca West, uh, usually just a com comedic, comedic relief and nobody took him seriously, but in relation, we are, uh, I, I wouldn't want to say forced, but we conveyed, I don't know, to, to really take him seriously, to understand him, to take him to heart. And it was also a surprise that they, in Revelation, the, the team of writers were um, skilled enough to make us care about characters that were just background, maybe not background, but just not that relevant to the lore or not so meaningful, full of meaning. And because Evelyn has always been a favorite, but Orko did not have many fans until now. Now he has uh, a lot of fans because he has a stellar moment in Revelation in this chapter. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know what? I, I didn't hate Orko, but I never loved him until now. Yes. And now after this episode, I love him, you know? Yes. Yeah. So, and I also 100% support the lore changes in regards to Orko's power set here because um, back between the parts of uh, part one and part two, uh, which was season one, season two to some countries, the executive producer mastermind of Masters of the Universe Revelation, Ted Biaselli, who's, who's awesome, by the way, um, he did an interview and revealed that he, uh, Kevin Smith and team, pretty much adhered to all 130 episodes of the filmation He-Man and the Masters of the Universe series and the lore it established. But he did say he made three changes and um, there were three creative liberties that they took. And now in the last podcast, we discussed the first change they made where they altered Roboto's origin, his birth from being an alien born on planet Robotica to a creation of man-at-arms instead. Well, in this episode, we see the second change, the second alteration established um, from the filmation show to Revelation, and that was in regards to Orko's power set. Now, originally in the 1983 filmation series, um, Orca was written as this powerful mage, you know, a powerful wizard on his homeworld Trala, that he was the Oracle already on Trala. But when he came to Eternia, he became this bumbling fool magician um, and he couldn't get anything right. And the creators of Revelation had trouble reconciling Orco's motives. I mean, they, they would ask, why don't... If Orca was one of the most powerful magicians on Trala, a wizard that could protect Trala, his homeworld, he had a family there, he had a girlfriend there, that why would he choose to stay on Eternia and basically become a mockery of magic and a court gesture to the king and queen? Why would he endure that and constant struggle with being a failure at magic and call himself a failure in that show? and be so disappointed with himself. And I would have to agree that it just didn't make sense. And it was more suiting for the character of Orko to struggle with magic 
on all worlds where he too was trying to win the approval of his parents and live up to his name oracle just like adam was trying to live up to his status prince and both orko and adam could develop a kingship um and them being considered both a disappointment to their parents and their inability to win their parents approval so for me logically this made sense so i understand completely why they changed the filmation show to revelation in this aspect for me personally and uh, i thought it was better yeah it improved the 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 character arc because otherwise you wouldn't have like why would you leave something that was perfect for you and be well the, the a jester right is that the word i think yeah um, yes yeah it makes uh more it has more narrative sense i would say yeah yeah i agree it's a good choice so all right, so Evelyn starts feeling empathy towards Orko, feeling uh, small and insignificant. And this is to me where Evelyn begins to start feeling like Lynn, you know, uh, where the true human inside her starts shining through uh, the villain's costume. When she explains to Orko that she has to fight, that he has to fight, that they have to fight for everything they won't give them. His enemies, yes, but especially his friends. When they say he is weak, it's because they don't understand that even the tiniest measure of strength can fill an entire universe. And then Evelyn says that very, very important line. She says, to them it's sorcery, but to Lynn it's magic. And... To me, this 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 perspective of hers, this uh, dichotomy, is still um, as fascinating as the first time I watched this episode. Now, when we had a uh, writer Tim Sheridan on, I believe, as he explained it, the root of what Lynn is explaining to Orko is that there's two ways to approach sorcery. Uh, one is formulaic. Uh, witchcraft, if you underline craft, but almost like science, a scientific equation. And the other way is to approach sorcery like art, like an expression of oneself, an approach where you're less hung up on momentarily failures of achieving a exact result you wanted but rather just embracing the beauty of creation, like, like an abstract painting, right? You're never going to achieve the same result twice because you're just sort of experimenting with paint. And so stop trying to achieve the same result. Just let it go and embrace the uniqueness of each magical journey. And this is just a wonderful moment for me, um, a line that gets called back on in the last episode, but it sums up how one could get lost in sorcery like Orko or simply lost in life. And I don't know, for this, I just say bravo. I loved it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way, I, I really like what 
what was said about the sorcery that it could be like something technical where it has or it can be done in a way that it shows the soul of the maid of the source sorcerer right that's right that's what i take get out of it yeah it's such a wonderful moment and i just love it and i still love it as much as i did when the first time i saw the episode it's so good hmm. so so then orko asks uh evelyn a personal question and lynn can already predict what he's going to ask and uh, she answers no they didn't call me evil i just added that part later I love that line. <laughs> I know, me too. And they, it sh and they it, it shows, it shows, it shows that she is choosing her own narrative. She's like, I, I took on the name of evil, and because I chose to, and I added that. But I, I think that even fans are calling, uh, are calling her now, Lynn, just Lynn. Like yeah. the evil is not as important as it was before because we get she she gets to be a real character like really fleshed out that I and I appreciate that too and I am amazed that they were able to do that in just ten ten chapters ten ten episodes I mean when back in filmation we had over a hundred and thirty those were not as developed not maybe two or three had like. Uh, an arc or something that we could understand the the background of the of that character if we were careful enough enough to to look at it, but in just ten chap ten episodes and uh, we get to understand a lot uh, of these characters on a deeper level level and I think that's great writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree too. Uh, so they laugh at that, uh, comment as well together. And it's a wonderful moment that has me, uh, smiling ear from ear, but then suddenly ears appear and, uh, not ears, eyes <laughs> and many of them and, uh, all well, ears too. And the shadows appear to be dead trollins also called uh, shadow beasts, according to the, to the art book. But um, then just as these shadows on the floor uh, push towards the middle of a ch the chamber and start filling in the fountain, filling the pool of the font, they form this gigantic King Kong, you know, size shadow beast. And uh, evil Lynn raises her wand to blast the beast, but it, it flickers out of magic like a... Like a dead light bulb. What? What? I cracked up <laughs> when I saw the scene. When she said what she said. <laughs> I was oh, like, she says, oh, bollocks. <laughs> yeah. I was laughing at night because I was watching it uh, late night that uh, when it first aired. And I was laughing yeah. on my own <laughs> in my living room. <laughs> And you know what? Just I think bollocks, by the way, is a very British word. It's not said here in the yeah, US. Yeah, very British. Yeah, and it's a saying. I've never of, heard it here. It's a saying of um, exasperation. And it really doesn't fit Eternia, but it fits actress Lena Headey 
So uh, it's perfect here. And I laughed and uh, <laughs> you're right. I still, it is do. A I still do. Every time I watched it, I just, <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> So uh, they clearly run, and then the scene transitions to Tila being on the ground, opening her eyes, and she pulls herself to find uh, herself alone. And she impatiently says, come on, I'm waiting, you know, and uh, but suddenly out of the shadows, we see this massive chest and battle harness that can only be identified as He-Man, yet it's not He-Man. When He-Man opens his eyes, his pupils glow menacingly red, and He-Man slowly draws his sword. And Tila extends the blade from her bow staff, and they charge at each other. Yes. I think I, I love this moment. I, I have a lot of fan theories about it. <laughs> I mean, why, why is there He-Man? Is she afraid of He-Man? I don't think so. I think she's afraid of what he represents and what uh, in the, the things that they are similar and then that she doesn't want to to see about herself. That, uh, do you want to go uh, further? And I that with my theories right now. Um, tell you what, yeah, just hold on to that thought and we'll get to that in a moment where they're yeah. a big battle together. So... So we first cut to Andra, right? And she's she's looking scared and she's using her gauntlet to shoot a wave of what appears to be green zombies, as you mentioned before. They're not uh, the shadow beasts anymore. They're in the form of zombies. And um, Roboto is surrounded by zombies and he transforms his hand into a gun and throws off the poncho. And by the way, I love that look, that poncho look that he wears. I don't know why a robot would wear a poncho, but I love it. <laughs> Very and, Western. Uh, yep. And he old starts. West. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like those old, old uh, Clint Eastwood movies. You know. And he, uh, well, so he starts blasting away zombies and he starts saying, excuse me, pardon me. I'm sorry. That will require medical attention. And it's very funny. And uh, Beast Man kept fighting fire bats with his whip. And. Andra, Andra is surprised by a zombie that ends up uh, biting her arm. And where I went, uh-oh, because I know typically if a zombie bites someone in movies and in TV, they usually turn into a zombie themselves. But, but Andra was fine, I'm guessing, because the zombie's teeth didn't penetrate her gauntlet. Um, or, you know, the zombies are illusions anyway. So, but that was the first thing I thought when I first saw that episode is Andre's going to turn into a zombie. Oh no. But, uh, Roboto comments that the zombies, the fire bats, they are all form of shadow beasts that they have never encountered before that they react to fear. When Andre says, why aren't they reacting to your fear, Roboto? He explains as an artificial construct that he doesn't experience fear. A statement that is setting up a bittersweet moment with Roboto in the next episode. It's but planting a seed. Yep. It's foreshadowing. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's terrific. Uh, but Andre says it's hard to fight when you're pants wetting scared, which makes me laugh. And uh, Roboto says, how enlightening, you know? And then Andre gets an idea when he says enlightening. So, 
Then we quickly cut back to Evelyn and Orko running away from the Shadow Beast giant. And the giant appears to have Lynn dead to rights and is going to smash her with his big fist. But Orko swoops in and rescues her just in time. And Evelyn is all pretty much out of magic. And when she acquires um, what can Orko offer to counter the Shadow Beast giant, Orko's still doubting himself at this point. He says, if I'm good at anything, it's being good at nothing. Uh, that he's useless. So Evelyn remarks that it sounds like your parents are talking. And just at that moment, Shadow Beast Giant finds them again. And then we cut to uh, Tila and Fear He-Man. So... Tila and Fear He-Man, they're fighting in this wonderfully choreographed uh, action scene that is extremely fun to watch. And Tila seems to be worried she's a little outmatched strength-wise. So she keeps outsmarting He-Man. Um, she keeps changing her bow staff from a blade to a staff to a grappling hook to keep using the element of surprise to keep this shadow He-Man, this fear He-Man, guessing and she's using that, you know, element of surprise. And she's able to trip him to the ground. So Fear He-Man reacts to what can be what he's perceiving as tricks, I guess, or not a fair fight. And he's saying, and you wonder why I didn't trust you. But Tila responds, but you did in every battle against every enemy in your life. But Fear He-Man counters, not my real life. It turns out you never knew me at all. And he tells Tila that she's always been alone. And Tila begins to cry and tells He-Man that he isn't real, that he's nothing. And He-Man responds, I am fear, your fear, inadequacy and abandonment, frailty and isolation, all because of a secret that I imparted to everyone but you. Yeah. So this is kind of what you were saying. Go ahead. Yeah, I um, I think in this moment, uh, fake human or fear human is is just uh, an aspect of Scarecrow probing Tila, just uh, trying to 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 understand push where to push the buttons, but he's he's not doing it quite well. Like Scarecrow is playing into these abandonment issues. But she's not uh, really frightened by it or uh, weakened by it, which is something that later happens when she fears uh, when she uh, fights uh, the other <laughs> figure that appears. And my one of my theories is that she's uh, she's actually fighting her shadow. Uh, Tila, what she is, uh, why this human appears is but that she senses that she is like him in a way that she cannot understand. There's something that she senses, and at the end of the chapter, we see that it's awakened in a way. Uh, it, it's her destiny, something that she is very secure in what she knows. So this legendary warrior, she she's very um, confident in what she can do. But somehow, her mind, are those based memories of her becoming a sorceress in 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 various occasions, like in the comic that came out with Revelation, the prequel comic, mm -hmm. 
she turns into uh, into sorcerers and she and her memory is wiped out again, but somehow it's still there and she knows this on a, on a cell level. I don't know how to express it. And she fears this greatness, the, this greatness. I mean, and that's something that I don't know if Scareglow says this or is it Heman or is uh, uh, Fear Tila who says this, that she is afraid of greatness. She is um, fighting what she can't uh, understand. Um, I don't want to get too technical, but I want to, to address something that my theory is that Tim Sheridan was playing with a concept that was uh, from Carl Jung in psychology. It is called shadow work, where there are aspects of ourselves that we have um, repressed. They don't necessarily necessarily are negative, but they are hard to accept for us in the society that we live in. And she is, um, all this fight is her integrating this shadow. And usually when you face your biggest fears or the things that you um, maybe are ashamed or uh, can't understand about yourself, when you finally see them and give them their place, uh, there's a great strength that comes with it. That's That's my theory. And I think that we can see that a little later in the in a chapter. Yeah. I I like you I like your theories and I have some different theories, but what's great is um it can be so much to everyone. So for me, for me, I feel that she has multiple fears. And I agree her biggest fear is is this what she needs to become. But I also do think, you know, Tila is crying here when she tells He-Man he's not real and he's nothing. And He-Man is saying, I am your fear. I am your fear of abandonment and isolation. And I think for me, what I got out of this is Tila has multiple fears. And one of her fears is what fear He-Man is talking about here begins with Tila being abandoned as a baby by her mother. You know, it's real trauma. Um, it's trauma. Call, it called adoption trauma, where even if a child is adopted into a loving home and grows up to adulthood around loving foster parents, that's common for them to still have not dealt with, um, not gotten over feelings of abandonment, feelings of rejection, the lack of feeling self worth due to their real birth parents not keeping them, that these feelings can be repressed deep inside and even make the, the person who was adopted, the adoptees, struggle with their own personal connections, struggle with their own personal relationships, even as an adult. There's a lack of trust there that's rooted in them since a child. And it's a wound that, um, well, sometimes never heals. And this wound to me was ripped open by learning that the, the men she loved, um, even romantically, Adam He-Man, uh, kept such a big secret from him that he shared with everyone else in his close-knit group, Duncan, Cringer, Orko, but not her. So I, yeah. I get this still makes all these feelings of isolation come up, you know, that she's still not 
she's still removed from family. She's not real family. And at least that was the impression I got, um, at least being one of her fears. Yes, but in a way, I, I see that she she was expressing her anger. That was the only <laughs> uh, feeling that she allowed herself to feel. She was not uh, dealing with her grief uh, in a different way. She was the, the only thing that she she finds acceptable is through to anger, and she in this played out in since chapter one. I mean, I, I keep saying chapter because it's the same word. Episode and chapter is the same in Spanish, but I mean in episode one. Um, but I don't think I don't feel that she's like really swayed by this, but she cracks. She really she she she's she falls apart when she is faced with her destiny. She is destined to be something great, in the, as great as human. And I think that she's when she says yes, I don't understand it, but I say yes to this power that's when she wins the fight. That's when she wins the battle with Scareglow. Right. Right. I saw that. I see that fear too. I saw that as her, her biggest fear of them all. Right. It was almost like, because Tim Sheridan mentioned that he did, um, Tila did encounter in the original script, Duncan, her stepfather or her, her adopted father as well. It was first Duncan, then he, man, than classic Tila, her shadow of herself. So she was going through all these um, issues that she's been struggling with, but I think it all led to her greatest fear, which is what you were saying. The, um, you know, the fact that uh, most people, they said, feel uh, feared just being ordinary, but Tila is the exact opposite. That, um, she fears her own fate and she explains it away and she hides it away and pretends to be ordinary when she knows deep down that she is so much more and that terrifies her. That's her um, worst fear. Yeah. Like, who is she? She, she I, I, I don't know who I will be if I say yes to this power, but she finally does. And that's a that's a breakthrough moment for that character and for the story. I think that's yeah. why this is my favorite chapter of of the first fight. Well, uh, maybe the fifth because they reconcile. They start. Uh, she's reunited with with Adam, and I ship them, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> this, but narratively, uh, this chapter is my favorite. Uh, this episode four. I mean, right, right. Yeah, uh, Tila, this is quite a moment for her, for her because um, that's when she retracts her weapon, right? And as you're saying, she she doesn't understand what's inside her. She doesn't understand the power coursing through her veins. She still doesn't understand it yet, but she's starting to come into it and accept it. You know, she says she never understood it and that it terrified her. But she realizes that it doesn't mean it controls her. And it has to do with something that happens in episode one, that she she's renounced magic. Yeah. Like she's ban banning magic from her life. She doesn't want to do anything with magic. She trusts uh, what she knows and technology and all these things. And turns out she's like the most powerful. She's destined to be the most powerful uh, sorceress in, 
in, uh, I mean, uh, the magic, the most uh, powerful magic being all over Eternia, like when yeah. she becomes the new sorceress. So it's a very, very deep conflict that plays out in this episode. And I, I love that um, once Tila has a breakthrough here, you know, Scareglow says, give me your power. And Tila responds that the only power down here is what you have given me. And this is, I found so terrific because Scareglow uh, has done here is almost like giving Tila a therapy session where um, a psychiatrist where she's able to work out so much of her suppressed fear and anger and recognize what was really bothering her and why and helped her get down to the root of it. That Scareglow, um, ironically, uh, unintentionally just helped her here. Helps her. It was the, yeah, it was the last thing he meant to do, but he made Tila finally face her fear versus run away from it, which she's done all her life. It's just run away. And, uh, and, and now Tila stops holding back the power inside her. She stops repressing it and begins to glow, you know, and pushes back scare glow with an unforeseen force. And, you know, as Tila speaks, it goes from that satellite shot to satellite shot where we see Evil Lynn hold on to Orko and use the power that uh, Orko had inside. And it wasn't Evil's, Evil Lynn's power. It was Orko's power that she used to defeat the Shadow Beast Giants. And then we, we cut to Andra, where she's modifying Roboto to blast and disintegrate all the zombie threats. As Tila's... Yes. I think there's a thematic element to this to this episode in which when you shed light over your worst fear, then you can see what, what it's hiding and what is the power. And then it disappears when you shed light over your worst fears. I think that's that's fantastic. And small groups that have well, Tila and Orko and Evelyn and on the other side, the other three. Uh that's the solution to this uh, to this problem of being in the shadow world, shedding light over them. Yep. And now Tila starts to embrace some of the power inside. She still doesn't understand it, but her body glows, and that blessing on her on on her forehead uh, that we learn about in another episode uh, glows. And Tila summons half the power sword. Uh, she's looking for into the hands herself and Scareglow's in shock and realizes at that moment that Tila is much more than even Scareglow is aware of. And that's when T uh, Scareglow asks Tila, what are you? And Tila looks down at him and says, oh, Scareglow, I'm your worst nightmare. So this was the first moment she came into her power. She still doesn't know how to use it yet. She still doesn't know she's the new sorceress, but she was able to manifest the sword she was looking for all along that she didn't even need to go through this trial. And she still has a long way to go. She still has a long way yeah. to go on her journey, but now she's, she's gone to the lowest possible point, uh, figuratively and literally speaking, 
and now she's coming up again in this in the heroine's journey, which is a bit different than the hero's journey. But yeah. well, I talk about it. Uh, but this thematic element of going on to the underworld and then coming back and um, reconciling and gathering your tribe. Uh, I saw this very clearly in in, in, in Revelation as Tila um, comes uh, out of, of this uh, ordeal, uh, changed and a lot stronger than than she th than she thought. When she's, she, as you said, she still doesn't know how to control it. She doesn't know what's going on. But she said, "Yes, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this is truly, but I say yes to my destiny." And I think that's the strength uh, that she finds there in Saturnia. I don't know what's going on. I might fear it, but I'm going to own it, and I'm going to yes. lean into it. And uh, yes. He doesn't know how she makes the sword appear, you know, because he has it hidden away, but she does. And I love his face. And I love her saying, I'm your worst nightmare. Yeah. And and then the entire fellowship has sex successfully uh, overcome their challenges and they are finally reunited. And Tila climbs out of the well and reveals to the team she has obtained the power sword. And after some hesitation, reluctantly gives it to Evelyn so she can use it to locate the sword's uh, other half. And Evelyn does this uh, very cool magical act where she slides her, her wand uh, down the half of the sword and says this cool incantation commanding the sword to disintegrate the cavern wall and open heaven's gate and lead them to the saber's mate. And Evelyn then strikes what appears to be in all tense of purposes um, the door's keyhole with the sword mm -hmm. and, and it charges up. It's almost like putting plugging it in this beautiful, uh, visually stunning door to Praternia, to the heaven of Eternia. And um, did you ever uh, watch the Lord of the Rings movies? At all? Yes. Yes. This, I'm, a, I'm this, a big fan too. <laughs> this door to me looked like it came right out of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the film, The Fellowship of the Ring. I, I don't know if you remember, there was a scene where Gandalf the Grey needs to enter this this western gate of Mor uh, Moria, this, this door of Durin, by speaking a password, which happens to be the elven word for friend. And... Mm -hmm this glowing purple door that Evelyn has opened with the inscriptions around the top. And yeah. It looks the, very similar to it. Yes. Yep. It looks the, like the opening the, with magic, right? Yep. Yep. And, and it's, um, an, it's an art, an archway art archway. Yeah. Yep. And, and you know, what's also interesting, just like Tolkien who wrote the Lord of the Rings stories is apparently the the inscriptions the writings like around the archway and on the door is a real language that they created for masters of universe revelation and i read about that in the art book that it's a real functional language and wow. um and it's like something like if i have some free time i'm going to want to study and maybe one day people write in this language that no one's going to be able to understand <laughs> but uh, you know what's really neat this is really neat is that one of the writings on the door actually reads Skeletor 
resides within the magic orb. And I didn't know who was warning them. It could be the door. It could be um, the sword. It could be something in Paternia. But they don't understand the language. But I think it's really marvelous that one of those writings actually is warning them, beware, Skeletor is with you. Skeletor is in the orb of the wand. And it's watching. And no one could read it, but it's there. And we don't know it either. But when I read this art book and now I know it says it, it adds another element that it's just wonderful to be a fan and to think of these things. So like, who was warning them, you know? And too bad they couldn't read it. So, but it was just something really cool, something to deep dive in. Uh, after that spell is done, Evelyn almost faints, but Beastman is there to catch her. And the door opens, revealing Paternia on the other side. And that's when we see the two towers and the monorail and everything gloriously looks like this classic playset that was released uh, a long time ago called the Eternia playset. Um, Tila is just stunned, wondering how Evelyn was able to perform such a marvelous feat. And Orko responds, saying that Evelyn did it with every last bit of magic she could conjure for the good guys and then winks at lynn and says turns out nobody's born evil and evil lynn actually seems to ponder and think of what orko's saying but suddenly suddenly she doesn't have time because a big rumbling occurs and a large green mist seeps through the ground and we see a green skull and we hear the voice of scareglow say what really matters is not your birth but how you die. And uh, Tila tells everyone to run for the door, but Scareglow summons these like stone-like uh, tentacles that grab the legs of the adventurers and hold them in place, except for Orko, because he's floating. And everyone tries to break free in a panic, and that fear that they produce only strengthens Scareglow. And Scareglow sure. shouts... Scareglow shouts out that their fear is crying out louder, louder, louder. And as he's screaming louder, there's this reverberating echo that is um, loosening the stalactites, um, those stone spikes from the ceiling. And um, they come falling down towards our heroes. And when Tila believes they are going to be struck by them, uh, they suddenly freeze in midair, and it's revealed that it's no one other than Orko who saved him. You know, it seems that Orko is finally taking Evelyn's words to heart and is fighting back the green ruler of Subternia as he turns these stone stalactites and sends them shooting at Scareglow. And for the first time I was watching this, I almost cheered at the uh, television screen. So it was a great moment. It was very moving. It was, uh, I was, I was, I was in tears. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, uh, I was like, this is his moment. He's sacrificing for the group for a greater good. And Motu has always been about that, about the greater good. And I think, I think that's why we clung to it. <laughs> so, so much like it gives you this comfort feeling, not, on, not just nostalgic, but like comfort like there there's still things in this world to fight that that are worth fighting for and to be good and all those things that we as as old time fans uh 
we, we heart so much. We, we love so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love how Orko turns back to Evelyn and because it's thanks to her um, and her clarity that allowed him to finally tap his potential. But Orko says, look, Lynn, I'm doing it. Me, you know, and uh, I love it. And, and then Tila is able to break the rock tentacles holding onto her leg and, and Tila's Yep. Into into Eternia. Well, they don't escape yet. Tila says you have to hold on because Tila goes off and helps to break the other ones free because to break Andra free and stuff from her, I think, rock tentacles. But Orko calmly tells her, Tila, it's okay. I'm not afraid he can't scare me. And the struggle goes back and forth um, as... You know, Orko casts these large orange uh, or golden rings and is able to stop all these green skulls that Scareglow is blasting at them. And Scareglow tries to reach Orko step by step. And Scareglow finally reaches Orko and grabs onto his robe with one hand. So Scareglow now has his hand on Orko and is not letting go. And that's when Tila comes running to save Orko, but it's too late. Um, Lynn tries, right? She points her staff at Orko, but the magic just fails. And then she collapses again. So Beastman just takes her right into Praternia. But Tila comes running to save him. Um, as Orko collapses one more or two of the magical rings on Scareglow, uh, one around his arm and the other one around his body and says, demon be gone and screams go back to your shadow and then suddenly they both collapse into a ball of blinding golden light which then explodes sending tila andra and robato flying back to the door of paternia and the door closes but not before orko's uh purple scarf blows through the air and gently uh, lands in the hand of Tila and uh, I don't know. Wow, what a moment, right? Yeah, unforgettable uh, moment. The first time yeah. I watched it, I was like, mm, yes, but no, but yes, but no. It was a very yeah. emotional moment. Yeah, and uh, it, it, Griffin Newman's performance combined with Rob Sheridan's um, or Tim Sheridan's writing, and it it just it just. And it also took me back, be honest with you, to that Fellowship Lord of the Rings movie where Gandalf is about to fall and he goes, fly, you fools. But this is so much better. It's so much more heroic and wonderful, but yet gut-wrenching too. And uh, including Bear McCreary's amazing musical score that just makes the sacrifice of Orko, you know, cut to your core, you know? And it's just fantastic. So... So Evelyn is heartbroken and she says she tried to save Orko, but as what usually happens when something traumatic occurs, it, at first it's just shock and pain. You know, people immediately look for someone to blame and start lashing out. So Andra uh, tells Lynn that she didn't try hard enough. And Attila angrily tells Evelyn that it should have been her dead instead of Orko. And this alliance was a mistake, but one she can easily fix as she draws her blade on her bow staff. But suddenly we hear a voice off screen. 
that hauntingly cuts through the anguish, the anger, the pain, and the heartache. Uh, not just for the characters, but for the audience, you know, for me as well. And uh, it was like, is that? And yeah, Tila looks over to the trees and sees a young man standing before her. Before her. And uh, Tila says, Adam? And yes, it is. As Adam's eyes widen in amazement, as he gazes at her and says, by the power of Grayskull. And then it cuts the black and we hear this wonderful yep. fe female voice uh, singing a beautiful but somber tune and the episode is over and wow, what an episode. Yeah, it was, it was perfect. I mean, and I think that uh, when Adam appears, it helped us as, a, as, uh, as an audience to get out of the shock of the loss of Orko because it was a, it was a, uh, it was a very intense moment and then we see Adam and we say like okay but there's hope they are reunited they, they are reunited and I was sure as, as soon as I saw him I mean as soon as I saw Preternia I knew Adam is going to be there uh, yeah. I have no doubt about it and I felt that he was going to be okay and and he's going to restore Eternia to what it once was and be uh, now now that everybody knows what a hero he truly is as Adam and as He-Man. I think that was a great way to to end that, that episode. Yes. Yeah. And it made me feel that Orko might be okay too. You know, if Adam was okay, that uh, maybe this won't be the end for Oracle, no matter how sad it was. And it still was sad. So, so overall, your feelings about this episode, you loved it, right? Yes, I think it, it was uh, quite a trip. I mean, it was very emotional. It took us, it took the, the fellowship, if we can call them that, uh, yes. to, to the, to the lowest point, and then they can only uh, and made them stronger. Each of the characters uh, came out stronger, uh, especially Orko, Evelyn, and and Tila, which are very very central to Motu lore. I think so. Yeah, yes. I, I love this 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 episode very much. Me too. Uh, for me, episode four, Land of the Dead, was the episode that really uh, clinched it for me that Masters of the Universe Revelation was really something special. Beyond anything we've ever watched in the Masters of the Universe uh, universe. It, it's a unique episode, not only in the terms that it feels self-contained almost and could almost be a standalone adventure, but this episode to me was all about soul searching, recognizing your fears and admitting to them and exercising those demons of the past and finding strength in your, your fear and your faults. And it's a brilliant episode and thought provoking and reaches really for me an emotional level that I've never seen in Masters of the Universe and never thought I would see to be honest. And it appeals to me not only as an adult, but a flawed adult with my own 
my own family issues that I, I'm subconsciously, I'm sure, even wrestling to, uh, wrestling with uh, to this day. And it's a wonderful episode across the board. And, um, you know, and I just thank you, everyone involved, the entire cast and Tim. And uh, I just loved it. And I continue to love this series from here because this is where for me masters of the universe revelation really hits its stride and each episode is just so terrific from here on out and uh now you know after watching four i just can't wait to revisit the rest of the episodes so it's great yes i I love it too So that about does it, Fernanda. Uh, do you have anything else you would like to touch upon or add before we sign off? Yes. Well, just just a little little about my fanfic and Revelation. If I had not written my fanfics uh, back in 2016, you would think that I took uh, a few things from Revelation and put them into it, but I did not. (laughs) And when I was watching it, I was like, yes, this is the thing that I was, that was in my head all these years and uh, seeing this uh, universe taking to a deeper level of, of, of emotion and exploration of the characters was just an amazing experience for me there's this scene at the in the in the episode in the first episode at the um, throne room when tila is going away preparing for battle and adam is left behind and the father is uh looking at him like oh a different context of course but it's very much like that one and i was like yes that's that's what i was thinking about and of course to me as a as a as a as a writer or as a creative person, it was very nice to see that these thematic elements were relevant not only uh, to me or to a niche uh, readership, but on a on a on a wider le- on a wider level of of the motu lore. That was, I, I think I'm I, I'm going to close with that. Yeah, I love Revelation for so many things, and this is one of them. I love it too. And I want to thank you for coming on. You've been an absolute delight and uh, I appreciate you co-hosting today. So thank you. And, uh, and thank you all out there for listening to this podcast. And if you enjoy the show, uh, please show us your support by subscribing to our streams, our channel, and please give us a like and a comment below. And you could also drop us a line, too, by sending us an email to fourturnia at gmail.com. We really do love the feedback. And uh, as always, visit us at fourturnia.com for all the latest updates and news, as well as links to our social media pages like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram that can help you stay up to date with all of our revolution, revelation, masterverse, and masters of the universe content. And also be sure to check Fernanda's uh, links to her fanfic, either on the foreturnia.com webpage or in the YouTube comments of this podcast. So that's it all. We'd like to thank you again for listening and let the power return 
We'll see you next time. Thank you so much.